Pelvic Rehab Research Podcast. My name is Becca Bissadolshensky, and I'll be your host guiding you as we take a deep dive into all things pelvic floor and research-based. Whether you're a pelvic newbie or a seasoned clinician, I'm here to help busy therapists listen through the Women's Health Study Guide. So if you're studying for the Women's Certified Specialist Exam or just interested in learning more about pelvic health research, we've got you covered. Hey everyone, welcome back to our episode on Wang in 2004 on low back pain during pregnancy, the prevalence, risk factors, and outcomes. So this is an abstract followed by another article by Williams in 2007 on the prevalence of enduring postnatal perineal morbidity and its relationship to perineal trauma. So let's jump into the first article by Wang. This was authored by Shuming Wang, Peggy Dezino, Ina Marinitz, Michael Berman, Allison Caldwell-Andrews, and Ziv Kane. So the objective of this study was to estimate the severity of low back pain during pregnancy, including prevalence, risk factors, impact on daily living, and health provider management. The methods included an anonymous survey consisting of 36 questions, and that was distributed to pregnant women participating in a bunch of different prenatal care clinics and educational classes in New Haven County, Connecticut. So a total of 950 surveys were returned from May 2002 through October 2003, and then at each site, a researcher was available each week in order to answer questions and gather those surveys. So what were the results of the surveys? For anyone who has offered a patient survey, by the way, getting 950 back is a pretty great result. So 645 respondents reported experiencing low back pain during their current pregnancy. The prevalence wasn't really affected by gestational age. Low back pain during the current pregnancy was predicted by age as younger women seemed to be more likely to develop it, a history of low back pain without pregnancy, so during times like menses, as well as low back pain during a prior pregnancy. The majority of respondents reported that low back pain during pregnancy caused sleep disturbances as well as affected daily life. Nearly 30% of respondents stopped performing at least one daily activity because of that pain and then reported that pain also impaired their performance of doing other routine tasks. Only 32% of the respondents with low back pain during pregnancy informed their prenatal care providers of this problem, and only 25 of prenatal care providers recommended a treatment option. So then what were their conclusions? Low back pain during pregnancy is a common problem that causes hardship in this population. Further studies are indicated in the areas of prevention and treatment. I think it's safe to say that most listening to this podcast probably already know this given the populations that you see, but it's always good to go over these broad studies in order to show those who don't have pregnancy patients daily that this is common, not normal, and often with this diagnosis, these patients aren't even sometimes offered a treatment. So moving on to our next article, this is by Williams in 2007, and just re-highlighting that it's on the prevalence of enduring postnatal perineal morbidity and its relationship to perineal trauma. So this is a full article, and the study was actually a retrospective cross-sectional community survey of postnatal women. Women endure postnatal morbidity after childbirth, such as symptoms like incontinence, pain, dyspronia, and prolapse. Assumptions have been made that women with the most severe of tears, so those with like those third and fourth degree tears, are at a higher risk of postnatal perineal morbidity compared to women with less severe tears and women with an intact perineum. Many studies are examining the risk factors and outcomes for third and fourth degree perineal tears only. 
Few investigators have examined perineal morbidity across grades of tears, and these limitations prevent clinical recommendations being made. So in 2000, the Royal College of Midwives, the RCM, stated that postnatal care was undervalued and under-resourced. The RCM published a document entitled Midwifery Practice in the Postnatal Period to provide recommendations for improvements in all aspects of postnatal care, including education, research, and policy. The outcome measure was the postnatal perineal morbidity, or the PPN. Given that this is an article for a midwifery care and that this outcome measure is likely not going to be in our clinical documentation, just know that it covers perineal pain, perineal healing, urinary incontinence, flatulence incontinence, fecal incontinence, both solid and liquid, as well as sexual morbidity, dyspronia, and hemorrhoids. The hypothesis of this article was that one, women with an intact perineum will not experience any enduring postnatal perineal morbidity. Two, women with higher grades of perineal trauma will experience more postnatal perineal morbidity than women with the lower grades of tear. Three, women with an intact perineum are more likely to start pain-free sexual intercourse earlier than women with a spontaneously occurring perineal tear or an episiotomy. And then four, women with an episiotomy will experience more perineal morbidity than women with a spontaneously occurring tear. So they had a total population sample of 2,100 women who were surveyed from two maternity units within Birmingham. The inclusion criteria were women from all ethnic groups with a minimum age of 16 years after the birth of a live term baby, so term being 36 weeks gestation, and then with no congenital abnormality or neonatal death. For this study, women were surveyed using a self-administered postnatal questionnaire 12 months after birth. That was the PPM I discussed above. The questionnaire included self-assessment of perineal pain, perineal healing, urinary incontinence, fecal incontinence, sexual morbidity, and dyspronia. So all questions were asked in the context of within the last month, reducing the risks of recall bias as much as possible. In addition, each question had a filter question where women had to answer whether they had new onset of symptoms or whether the symptoms were present before birth. I think that's important. This ensured that only new onset morbidity was accounted for. So a total of 482 questionnaires were returned after the remainder was sent. So that was leading to about a 23% response rate. The overall level of morbidity within the sample at 12 months after birth was pretty high, with 87 reporting at least one index of morbidity to some degree. The overall level of morbidity within that same sample at 12 months after birth was high, with 87% reporting at least one index of morbidity to some degree. Stress urinary incontinence being reported 53% and urge urinary incontinence reported at 36%. 55% of women had some type of sexual morbidity, including 30% reporting dyspronia at 12 months after birth. Rectal morbidity seemed to be a little less common, but still worryingly high at about almost 10%, with some degree of fecal liquid incontinence, and then 5% having some degree of solid fecal incontinence. Also at one year after birth, 32% of women who had an episiotomy or tear still experienced some degree of perineal pain. So big picture, women with perineal trauma, either spontaneous or an episiotomy, reported significantly more morbidity than women with an intact perineum. Women who experienced a perineal tear or episiotomy resumed sexual intercourse significantly later 
than those with an intact perineum. No statistically significant associations were found between types of perineal trauma and perineal morbidity symptoms. Also, no statistically significant associations were found between the type of perineal trauma and the female libido, sexual satisfaction, and relationship with their partner. The analysis between grades of perineal trauma took place between intact perineum, first-degree and second-degree perineal tears only. No analysis was carried out on third-degree tears, as there was only like an N of four for those, and then no women with a fourth-degree perineal tear responded to the questionnaire. More women with a first- or second-degree perineal tear reported stress urinary incontinence and sexual morbidity than women with an intact perineum. And then women with a second-degree tear had sexual intercourse later than women with an intact perineum as well. There is no similar relationship found with women with a first-degree tear and an intact perineum, so they had a similar return to intimacy timelines. However, no associations were found with grade of perineal trauma and certain other types of morbidity, like fecal incontinence, perineal pain, hemorrhoids, libido changes, etc. Another interesting finding was no significant differences between reported perineal morbidity were found between sutured and unsutured tears. So of note, they didn't take into consideration like the suturing materials, the methods of suturing, or the skill of the provider as far as the suture comparison. There was no statistically significant difference in reporting levels of perineal morbidity that were identified between women with an episiotomy compared to women with a first or second degree perineal trauma. So I like that they compared two different ways of perineal injuries, the episiotomy and just general trauma. So let's jump into discussion because while I love the nature and information in the study, there is definite limitations and challenges with it. So here are some considerations when just looking at this data. The prevalence rates of morbidity could be exaggerated because women with perineal problems are way more likely to apply than women with no perineal problems. Ultimately, a significant number of women reported some degree of perineal morbidity at 12 months. Further investigation is really needed to identify what level of service provision is needed. Also, the authors found that the response rate was pretty low for this type of community survey. So because of the small number of responders, the numbers in each group were too low to analyze them separately. Therefore, the data had to be collapsed down into a dichotomous variable for analysis. So that being that there was only with morbidity and without morbidity versus broken up more into like rarely, some of the time, things like that being an option. An obvious limitation was the low number of women responders with a third or fourth degree perineal tear, which is the opposite of what most studies are done with. And then on to some conclusions. The findings of this study suggest that women with perineal trauma, spontaneously occurring or episiotomy, experience significantly more perineal morbidity than women with an intact perineum. Although no strong conclusions can be made from the limited evidence, it's apparent that women across all grades of tear can experience perineal morbidity, which contradicts some of the present service provision given to women within that postnatal period. This study found similar levels of morbidity in women with an episiotomy to women with a first or second degree perineal tear. They discussed a comparison study of an episiotomy to a tear and that there were findings in that study showing women with a first or second degree tear having stronger pelvic floor muscles than women with an episiotomy. The authors note that although pelvic floor strength may be diminished by perineal trauma, it may not necessarily cause symptoms of morbidity. 
So I think the biggest take-home point is that more research is warranted, and it's also fair to say that you can't assume the morbidity based off of type or degree of perineal injury. While I love this study, I'm always fascinated by the generalized findings in order for me to walk into a room and assess for what I should expect. It's important to recognize the variability in symptoms from the same injuries. So that being said, we're on to our last week five article next. So you actually can assume and prepare yourselves for a bad pelvic joke to round out this study week. And then that last article is by Wu in 2004 on pregnancy-related pelvic girdle pain, going over terminology, clinical presentation, and prevalence. So as always, thank you for listening, and I hope to see you all listening at our next article. Bye, pelvic people. (laughs) 